Hello, and welcome to Disneyversity, the podcast crash course through the history of Disney's animated classics, where we talk about some of the most famous movies ever made that most of us probably don't know nearly as well as we think. Each episode, we'll be moving forward in time through the legendary Disney catalogue, watching every feature film in the Walt Disney Animation Studios vault, from Snow White to Raya and the Last Dragon, seeing how they stand up today, how they pushed the boundaries of animation, shaped the legacy of Walt Disney and the wider Disney brand, and how they influenced pop culture at large. disclaimer this is not an official disney podcast but all of these films are available to stream now on disney plus so come on watch along with us and let's learn together i'm film journalist ben travis and this week we're taking another brief intermission in the podcast schedule to take a look back over the package films era of the walt disney animation studios catalogue as with our last study group episode there's no required viewing or homework this week Instead, we'll be chatting about the six films we've just seen across the previous three episodes of the podcast. That's Saludos Amigos, The Three Caballeros, Make Mine Music, Fun and Fancy Free, Melody Time, and The Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad. Discussing our favourite sequences, songs and characters, examining their pop cultural legacy or lack thereof. Plus, we'll be sharing our thoughts on the brand new animated Disney film, Raya and the Last Dragon. As ever, I won't be alone in this, because then this entire show would just be one idiot talking to himself. Instead, it's two idiots talking to each other, and my infinitely smarter co-idiot-in-chief is Dr. Sam Summers. Sam, you're the only person who had homework for this episode, and that was to watch Raya and the Last Dragon. It gave me a lot of pleasure to be like, do you know what, Sam, for this episode, you need to watch a Disney film. How do you like that? I quite liked it, yeah. I'm £20 <laughs> poorer, but I'm infinitely richer in terms of my cultural experience. That's good. And and how are you feeling? I, I know we sort of mentioned a bit at the start of the last episode how we were feeling about coming to the end of the package era. I don't know about you, I'm excited and looking forward to what's coming next. Yeah, it's a huge run of bangers, isn't it? It's just classic after classic after classic. It's a new era for the studio in terms of the kinds of stories and the kinds of things that they're dealing with, a lot of which is a throwback to the first run of five features in terms of we're going to get more um, musicals, we're going to get more fairy tale stories, but they're also breaking new ground in various different ways as well, especially when it comes to some of the techniques that they're applying in these films visually. So, yes, exciting. It's always very fun to move from one stage of this studio's history to the next and really start to think about how they're evolving and how they're crystallising into the studio that we all believe them to be in like our public consciousness. Completely. And I think that's what's been fascinating with the package era stuff, because it's it's not really been the Disney that we know or the Disney that we think about or the Disney that has stuck around in the public consciousness. It's been just a real odd mix of stories and styles and characters and songs and I feel like we have a little bit of unfinished business with this era so hopefully by the end of this episode we'll have all of our feelings on the table about the package era and then we'll be ready to move on into yeah this like 
what are we calling it the bangers era (laughs) but loads of the films that we have coming up are again like total classics there are a couple that i know quite well and as with the first five features there are some where it's like oh i i thought i knew this film but actually maybe i really don't and i haven't seen it in years or maybe i've never seen it so i'm super hyped to get into that so in some ways it's actually not been that long since we did our last study group episode it might feel quite quick for some people but actually We've covered six films across those last three episodes of the show, so we've actually seen more package films than we have of the traditional Disney films so far. Like, I I thought it was an interesting time to stop now and do another one of these study groups because we've had six package films, and it's really interesting to think of the Disney company at this point in its output, where for audiences at the time, like, their conceptions of what Disney movies are had probably changed massively based on where they were at the end of the last era. Yes, so that is absolutely the case. There are six package films, five conventional feature-length films. This package era has been going on for six years now. Disney was only producing feature films for five years prior to this. So there's definitely a possibility that Disney, as the studio that puts out these kind of very patchy compilations, is starting to supersede the Disney who makes these very lavish, big-budget movies. Definitely when we've looked at the critical response to these movies, we've started to see more and more some people, not everybody, getting a bit sick of this. We've started to see the box office returns for these movies gradually decrease and decrease, although it should also be noted that by the end of the first era of feature-length films, we'd also start to see box office drop off a little bit with Bambi, which was much less profitable than Dumbo, for example. But I guess another thing to remember is that Disney existed as a studio for a long, long time before they even made Snow White. They already had this long history of Mickey Mouse shorts and Silly Symphonies, which for a lot of people, maybe particularly slightly older people, that is what they remember Disney for. And when we looked at the reception of Bambi, we had a lot of critics saying, well, this is moving too far away from what we want from Disney, which is the the Mickey Mouse fun and fancy-free kind of content. And that is now what Disney has given us. He's given us feature-length films that incorporate Mickey Mouse that are a lot less cerebral, perhaps, than something like Bambi or Fantasia. And yet, I think the era that we are about to enter into, we find Disney meeting somewhere in the middle feature-length films, some of which have some very big and interesting ideas, but which also give people what they want. We'll kind of start to see Disney shut up and play their hits for a little bit. And <laughs> like I said, this is when what we think of Disney really starts to crystallise, because even in those first five features, there are parts of that run, which I think you definitely found, weren't quite what you expected from classic Disney either. Yeah, darker, weirder, stranger... Uh, really unexpected in a lot of ways. I'm intrigued to see if what from the next lot of films, again, yeah, feels darker or weirder, or because it's always the light, fluffy, soft bits that have entered the cultural consciousness. So I'm very intrigued to see uh, where that all goes. One thing then that you mentioned that is going to tee us up nicely for our main discussion today is that these package films, let's face it, they are patchy. We've spoken the whole time <laughs> about how even within the films that we preferred from this era, like there's some great segments in there, but some of them don't hit as well. Or like Three Caballeros, what a weird hodgepodge. Like there's about 50 minutes of that film that feels really kind of 
coherent in tone and theme and ideas, but you've got two shorts at the start that's about a penguin who wants to be warm, and was the other one about a, a donkey that can fly? Like, Yeah, donkey that can fly. <laughs> sort of all over the place. But shall we discuss our favourite sequences from this lot of films? Because for me, I find it hard to even think of the films themselves rather than just gravitating towards specific sequences within them. Sam, what are your favourite sequences from the package era? Okay, I've listed three, and these are fairly off the top of my head, although two of them are completely nailed on, and there's one kind of wild card. So I think probably my favourite thing from any of these films, which if you've been keeping up with the pods, you'll probably be able to guess, is the Donald Horney surreal reverie from the end of The Three Caballeros, which, weird bestiality implications aside, is, as I said before, one of the most visually groundbreaking and just purely exciting things that Disney have put on screen to this point and that Disney would put on screen for a long time. I was trying to think of any like mainstream American family-oriented animated film that had visuals which combined different styles of animation and different you know, elements of collage and elements of real abstraction into the animation and like is there anything between caballeros and like into the spider-verse that really captures that (laughs) i was struggling to think i don't know yeah I'm, i'm not sure if there's anything that feels as wild as that the thing i loved about this sequence and us covering this sequence is that I could feel your affection and reverence for it growing even as we did the podcast. If you're not following us yet on Instagram, do go and follow us on Instagram because we're posting uh, Sam's episode notes about each film so far. He picks scenes and moments and visuals that are really striking and annotates them and that's all on our Instagram. And I feel like as you were going through that crazy horny Donald segment, just moment by moment, frame by frame it sort of hit you all over again i remember you were messaging me just like this is honestly one of the best and craziest things disney has ever 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 done and i love that you seemed even more enthused than when we were discussing it on the podcast yeah i think that's true it is every time you go back you notice something new or the kind of strangeness of something that you've already noticed you are reacquainted with it i mean the thing that i always go back to that is just like what is this how is this in like a mainstream family movie is the bit where it's Donald, Pancho and Jose dancing with human woman's legs and then they all turn into a kind of pantomime horse which still has human woman's like live action human woman's legs it's just like what is this the the way that it hybridizes these different forms the way that it creates this almost like cyborgian figure that is neither male nor female, human nor animal, animated nor live action. It's so bizarre and just, it sticks out like a sore thumb even amongst everything else that is going on in that movie. And it's like, this is the Disney animators let off the leash, left to do whatever they want, as long as it is interpreting the Latin American music that they are being inspired by. And they realise it in such a unique way, such a striking way. Yeah, absolutely. That crazy Donald segment for me, even just the whole back half of Caballeros, like total highlight of this era. Uh, What else stood out for you then? You said you've got three that really stood out. I feel like this is probably going to end up on your list as well. But the Headless Horseman chase from the end of Ichabod and Mr. Toad, just, you know, I I don't want to go on about it for too long because we did it literally last week. But it's, (laughs) um, it's a thrill. It's got exceptionally adept usage of 
colour of character animation and also a real understanding of how to cut together a horror sequence, how to produce sound design for a horror sequence. You know, it's like you do really do get the impression that they've been watching contemporaneous horror movies for inspiration and yet actually when you line this up against the horror movies that were being produced in Hollywood at the same time like the old Universal flicks which I've got a lot of affection for I love those movies the editing in this is actually much more fast-paced and more in line with what you would expect from modern horror I, I think in a way there's probably all the films that I'm forgetting that um you know live action films that use similar techniques but in a way this is almost a forerunner this is almost pushing horror into a new generation of, of how to frighten people through the use of the film form yeah that is a hundred percent on my list as well and i'm glad i like i feel like you have more affection for the whole sleepy hollow segment overall but i'm glad even you can admit it's that last 10 minutes that's just like oh yeah this is amazing it's metal as hell that image of the headless horseman chucking that flaming pumpkin across the bridge it's so cool i love it yeah that is easily a highlight for me go on then what's your final one my final one is willy the whale <laughs> your boy willy yeah i just have such i've got a real affection for that character the way that he you know he's a dreamer he's he is a classic disney protagonist in the sense that maybe even well, we might have mentioned this in the episode but reminiscent of a ratatouille kind of storyline right it's well it's become a cliche of modern day computer animated family films is that they are about animals who want to do things that those animals shouldn't want to do remy the rat in ratatouille wants to be the a chef of all our dreams <laughs> <laughs> if you're not aware of ratatouille the musical as created by gen z on tiktok go and check that out it's one of the only good things that's happened in 2021 fantastic but yeah you know what i mean like turbo the snail in turbo wants to be a race car <laughs> <laughs> i'm so glad that as an academic you can whack out turbo DreamWorks Turbo. Turbo. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> DreamWorks Turbo, Ryan Reynolds, Paul Giamatti, Samuel Jackson. Train wants to be a race car. <laughs> Barry B. Benson in B-Movie wants to have sex with a human woman, and, and bees aren't supposed to do that, and that's, you know, what the whole movie is built around. Animals wanting to do things that they shouldn't do. I feel like Barry B. Benson had probably watched the second half of The Three Caballeros and really related to it. Oh, uh, yeah, him and Donald would get on really well, but I think we should keep them away from each other because mm-hmm. there'd be a bad influence on one another. So, yeah, Willie the Whale really taps into that very modern uh, strain, that very modern tradition of animated filmmaking, of animated storytelling. But we also get that... Well, first of all, we've got the absolutely spectacular operatic vocals. You were all about the triple dangly boys. <laughs> He had three dangly boys in his throat, three uvulas, and each of them produces a different voice, a different pitch, yeah? This is where my, like, musical credentials (laughs) are really held up to the light. Yeah, and all of the vocals in that sequence, all of these different pitches, all these different voices are performed by one guy called Nelson Eddy, and it's a real virtuoso performance. What he achieves, I I think, is is quite mind-blowing. But then we get this montage that goes through all of Willie's like imagined operatic performances where he embodies different characters from different operas you've got Pagliacci you've got Mephistopheles and they're all in like a regular human-sized auditorium where Willie the Whale is towering over all of the audience and the other actors so great use of perspective for comedic purposes again really great character animation and a tragic ending 
Yeah, the tragic ending like killed it for me. It killed Willy and it killed it for me. I really enjoyed that sequence and I love the opera montage. You're totally right. Him performing at the Met is great until you realise it's his death dream and we've been like Jacob's laddered all along. <laughs> it just made me so sad. That's the sequence that the film sends you out on. It's like, there you go, the whale died, the end. And you're like, what? No, yeah. you can't do that. I think I might have actually said last week that Ichabod is the first Disney film where the main character dies at the end, but of course it's not. It's Make My Music, mm-hmm. it's Willie the Operatic Whale, and those two sequences are both in my top three, so what does that say about me? <laughs> well, that one didn't make my list of my favourites, but... Um... I'd just like to quickly shout out, um, I mean, we've spoken about Caballeros, but Bahia in Caballeros is amazing. Pedro the Plain. I loved Pedro the Plain. He was really cute. And I liked the sweetness of Saludos Amigos, and I think he represents that really nicely. One of my other favourites, again, we just talked about it last week, was Once Upon a Wintertime from Melody Time. It's the opening sequence of Melody Time. Beautiful Mary Blair visuals. Like, I said it on last week's pod, but that should be, like, a little Christmas classic. That should be something that we revisit in wintertime because it's just, it's lovely and it's sweet and it's exciting and it has that real sense of wintriness about it, which I really liked. So just one more before we move on. Um, I had a DM from a guy called Luke. Uh, Don't worry, I'm not going to say your last name, but um, Luke, you know who you are. He DM'd me saying, I just wanted to say I showed my two-year-old the Blame It on the Samba short and he adores it. The music and animation makes him grin like the characters in the short, so thank you for that. Do you think the fact that this sketch still has this impact on a young child all these years later is testament to what Walt Disney wanted as animation to achieve? I'd say 100% yeah, like it's so lovely. Thank you for sending that in. And the Samba stuff in all of these films is so infectious and it's so vibrant and joyful. And it's really lovely to hear that beyond us two sort of cynical idiots, it still works for kids. Like that is a wonderful thing. Yeah, I mean, it's bright colours, it's fun music. There's something just purely entertaining about it on a primal level, isn't there? Completely, completely. And on that note then, the next thing we're going to discuss are songs and characters. So what songs and characters stood out for you, Sam, from these movies? Well, you've been saying that you weren't 100% certain about songs, that you haven't had many of these songs stuck in your head, but almost every time we'll record one of these episodes, I am going around for the entire week with one of the songs stuck in my head, if not longer. I had the Three Caballeros tune in my head for probably weeks. The Three Caballeros, Three Gay Caballeros. See, you can't remember it. And that, like a lot of the like a lot of the songs in the Latin American films, is based on an existing song from one of those countries. In this case, it's a Mexican folk song called I Helisco No Terrajes. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Another standout from those films is Aquareo do Brasil, which again was an existing song written a couple of years earlier by a guy called Ari Barroso. But that sequence elevated that song, that Brazil, oh Brazil, to a really prominent place in pop culture to the point where I think a lot of people still think of that when they think of the country. And it helps as well that both of those songs are paired with really excellent and evocative animation sequences as well. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing for me. So much of the music here, I can't really tear it apart from the visuals and the sequences. That's what feels special to me rather than just the songs themselves. But you're right that, yeah, Aquarello do Brazil 
Brazil and yeah the three caballeros song also the fun 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 and fancy free that's like <laughs> stayed with me weirdly but I am still yet to have like any Disney bangers hopping out as like oh what a hit do you know what I mean you don't like the headless horseman song I don't remember it. I, like I've obviously only seen that the once, but it hasn't. That hasn't stuck out to me, you know. Uh, maybe it's just because I've watched it more than you, and maybe it's because it's performed by the legendary Bing Crosby. But yeah, that is another one that just really, really lodges itself in my brain, especially around Halloween. I'm always humming that. When he goes jogging across the land, holding his noggin in his hand. <laughs> I mean, I, I, there's great lyrics in there as well, like a joggin holding his noggin. <laughs> if you can get the word noggin in there, like you 100% should. Yep, yep, yep. With a clippy clap, he's out looking for a top to chop. I think they've, <laughs> they've really thought of every word for head and every mm-hmm. word for like decapitation and linked them in there together. That It's just jam-packed. It's a fun melody. It's Again, it's a fun sequence, that like Halloween party scene with Brombones trying to intimidate Ichabod Crane. Yeah, like that. Big fan. It's on my old-timey Halloween playlist. Nice. Oh, you'll have to share that with me when we get around to October. I'm going to need Sam's Halloween playlist. For me, yeah, like I said, not a huge amount stood out, but I did love all of the Samba sequences and the music in that was really infectious. So I just put all of the Samba music, which is a total cop-out answer, but I'm sticking with it. I mean, on the characters front... I thought there were some decent characters here. I thought Jose Carioca was awesome. He's just like a fun, exciting dude. I loved seeing him whenever he popped up. The fact that he popped up in multiple movies across this era was like a real little treat. And I also really liked the Araquan, who again feels like sort of the star of the show in a lot of ways between Caballeros and and Melody Time. Like when that guy shows up, you know you're going to have a fun time. And I was very much here for that. I think the other thing that was just really interesting was seeing the classic Disney characters in these movies. Like, obviously you love Donald Duck way more than I do, but having Donald and Mickey and Goofy in these films, that felt special. That felt like a cool thing, especially as somebody who hasn't seen a huge amount of those shorts. For these characters that have this massive legacy outside of being on the screen, to actually then go back to the source of them, of who these characters are, what they're like on the screen, what their personalities are, I thought that really came across. In terms of characters that stood out for the wrong reasons, God, those ventriloquist dummies in Fun and Fancy Free, like just pure nightmare fuel. It's weeks since we covered those, but what the hell was that about, Sam? What was that? Yeah, it's one of those things where, with all due respect to Edgar Bergen, legendary ventriloquist, huge influence on Jim Henson and the Muppets, it's not just that ventriloquist dummies haven't aged well as popular entertainment, it's also that I cannot imagine them ever not being creepy i can't Mm. put myself in the headspace of someone who is a entertained by them and b can even stand to look at them for more than five minutes without running for the nearest exit yeah they are like absolutely horrifying what was it mortimer snurd and charlie mccarthy charlie mccarthy i'm so glad to see the back of them please tell me they don't turn up in any more films from here on in yeah they come back to narrate pretty much every movie going forward i think you don't remember the (laughs) intro that they recorded to 101 dalmatians (laughs) oh my god yeah i i don't think i could handle that i think we'd have to just quit the podcast sam that would be it i'd happily fail disney university (laughs) so go on then what are your characters that you love from these shorts Well, for me, again, it's Joe Carioca. And, you know, no shade on Pancho, because he's pretty cool as well. He's got a real, like, 
chaotic energy to him. Uh, he's a very abrasive guy. He's always like shooting his guns around, which you know is frightening. I wouldn't want to be friends with somebody who did that. I would look for other company if that was the case. But um, it's entertaining to watch. He brings a specific energy to the scenes that he's in. But it, there's something about Joe Carioca, the way that he's able to be cool as a cucumber in one second and then immediately become this anarchic, almost like Robin Williams as the genius figure mm-hmm. who's um, messing Donald around and shape-shifting and throwing him into all these crazy situations. And I love that dynamic between the two as well. Other than that, it's Willy the Whale, as aforementioned. He is the character who, to me, is like, don't understand why this guy isn't bigger. I mean, obviously, he's very physically large, but I don't understand why this guy isn't a Disney legend, why he didn't enter the Pantheon. He's got everything. He's a, he's a triple threat, quite literally, with his with his three dangly boys. <laughs> and also Cyril the Horse. Oh, you loved Cyril the Horse from, from Mr. Toad. <laughs> yeah, I find everything Cyril the Horse says hilarious. He's just such, like, an arsehole, but he's, like, he's, <laughs> he's really cheeky. He's a real, like, lovable rogue, spiv kind of character. You know, he's a bit of a trotter, a bit of a rotter. That's his, like, introductory catchphrase. I feel like that line should be repeated maybe another four times just to really <laughs> hammer it home. And then there's this bit where he's in the courtroom when the kind of sinister lawyer is questioning him about how Toad got his motor car. And Cyril says, he got it the honest way. And the lawyer says, what is the honest way? And Cyril says, oh, I thought you wouldn't know that, governor. <laughs> Just really roasted him. He's so sarky. It might not be the funniest line in any movie ever, but like, I don't know, it, it just you. stands out. He's got a real... He's just got a real sense of humour, that guy. Real quick wit. So, toads in yieldy outfits and sarcastic horses, very much your your vibe. Yep, yep, yep. And, you know, there's a venerable tradition of Disney horses, especially in, in like, the more recent movies. There's, like, Maximus from um, Tangled and Pegasus from Hercules. Put Cyril in the Pantheon. Okay, this is what I want. I want a Disney horse franchise. It's like the Disney princesses that sell like gangbusters. Kids love toy horses, right? Probably. Is that true? I don't know if I'm making that up. Yeah, I think so. There's a reason there's that water horse thing in Frozen 2 that's like you're all going to buy this horse and you know it. Yeah, another brilliant horse. I mean, Sven from Frozen (laughs) almost counts as well. He's a a quadruped, right? He's in the horse neighbourhood. I want to see Sven, Maximus, Pegasus, like Khan from Mulan, and Cyril all together having like tea parties or whatever it is the princesses do when they're together. And do you think Cyril would be the leader or would he be the slightly sarcastic outsider? He's the roguish, like nobody quite trusts him. You know, you keep him around, but you never quite know when he's going to pull off a double cross. Maybe like the Loki. As you were saying that, I was like, this is just Loki. You're just describing Loki. Okay, what Loki is to the Avengers, Cyril is to the Disney horse gang that I've made up in my head. Yeah. Do you know what? I'll give it to you. Cyril, he was a good horse. He was a good character. He was a funny character. Um, I don't quite share your affection, but I'm glad you've shared that with us, you know? Okay, so the next job that we need to do, because this is a list of jobs, Sam. This is a set of tasks that we have to fulfill. We need to rank these package films. And I found this quite hard because, as we were saying before, they are all quite patchy. Like, even the ones that I really liked had stuff in them that I wasn't that fussed about. 
Also, the ones that overall I didn't love still had decent things in them. But do you want to share your ranking first and then I'll do mine? Oh, okay. I'll do mine. I think we did it the other way around last time, so mm-hmm. I'll do it's mine first this time. Yes, I agree that one of the difficult things with ranking these movies, or evaluating any anthology movie, really, is does the stuff that I really, really like outweigh the stuff that I'm not so fussed about or the stuff that was actively bad? So... For me, even though Willie the Whale is one of my favourite characters, one of my favourite scenes from any of these movies, Make My Music is dead last. I'm going to anticipate that that might be the case for you as well. Absolutely the case for me, yeah. So we're, we're equal there. Make My Music just... That's the only film so far that as we've been recording the podcast, we've basically been like, wow, we don't like this film. <laughs> Which was a weird one. Yeah, it's just kind of weak, it feels lazy, it feels like what it is, which is a bunch of half-finished ideas cobbled together. Many of the shorts have interesting conceits at their core, but the execution here, it just felt like someone abandoned it halfway through. It wasn't, like, fulfilled. Its potential was not fulfilled. The next two, I kind of had trouble distinguishing between because I just found them both very inoffensive, nothing really spectacular, but nothing bad either. At number five, I've put Fun and Fancy Free. Same, yep. Oh, are we, we're both the same so far? We're both the same so far. Yeah, Fun and Fancy Free was my number five as well. Okay, so Fun and Fancy Free, like, decent, right? Like, amusing enough, you sit through it, you watch it, it's like, okay, I am entertained, I am not bored. The ventriloquist dummy stuff is, in a way, off-putting, but also wild enough to, like, really jolt you, to, like, mm-hmm. command your attention. It's so unexpected, and you can say to people, oh my god, you want to watch one of the weirdest things Disney have ever done? Watch this stuff from Fun and Fancy Free. Also, it's that bongo the bear thing where it's like this is a disney character that sort of almost was and you can see how he is very disney-ish but he never really was a thing there's something interesting in that yeah but i mean and the bongo sequence in particular feels like just the most three-star thing ever created it's just bland it's not fine. terrible i had the say it with a slap bit where all the bears were singing about how they love to hit each other yeah that was really weird and i do not condone that yeah very uncomfortable connotations there but again something that's like okay that was strange enough that it made this movie worth watching and then you get mickey and the beanstalk which is you know it's the gang they are together they are doing what they do best what being starving and murderous <laughs> that's what donald does best yeah. absolutely but it's like if i want to watch some mickey donald goofy content would i watch this or would i watch some of the classic shorts and it'd probably be the latter to be honest so we've been the same so far i think this is where we're going to break off because my number four is saludos amigos which for me was just too short and insubstantial to really amount to anything to really challenge the next three movies on this list none of it was bad the final watercolor of brazil sequence where we first meet joe carioca is very very good and stands up with the best stuff in any of these movies but it ends before it's really begun you are left wanting more and if you watch the three caballeros immediately afterwards that that's what you get but it feels like this the best sequence of this movie was set up for another movie mm-hmm. although like you said i do appreciate all the pseudo documentary stuff about walt and friends cutting about latin america so you're right that we we differ at this point because my number four was the adventures of ichabod and mr toad which i did enjoy a lot and like you said both halves of that feel actually really well thought out and very complete those are what those half films were meant to be um and they had loads of cool and interesting stuff in them especially the end of the sleepy hollow stuff it didn't get my heart in the way that other disney things do and 
I go with my heart over my head. And uh, yeah, my heart put this in fourth below some of the other stuff. All right, okay, fair enough. I can I can see that. I, I mean, I got the impression when we were talking about it that like Ben likes this and respects it, but he's not on board in the same way that I am with them mm-hmm. with these particular fabulous characters. What if you had the headless horseman riding Cyril? That would have been your ultimate Disney movie. Oh my god, it's the original odd couple going around <laughs> committing murders together. It's like a Bonnie and Clyde setup. Yeah, Cyril making like sarcastic comments while the Headless Horseman's like chopping people's heads off. <laughs> and to be fair, Headless Horseman, great horse. Decent horse, spooky horse. Yeah, he'd maybe be an antagonist in my um, Disney Horse Adventures series, which I'm <laughs> quickly preparing the pitch for mentally as we speak. Hey, look, there's a lot of room on Disney Plus for new content, Sam. So my number three is Melody Time. I said this in the episode, but it's make my music, but better. It's make my music, but more fully realised. There are fewer shorts, which means that they've got time to really get stuck in and to bring their ideas to fruition in a way that they weren't able to with Make My Music. And it also helps that nearly all of these sequences were conceived specifically for Melody Time as opposed to being shortened versions of other projects or ideas that they couldn't find a place for elsewhere. So, yeah, Melody Time, it's all good. It all holds up. Some of it's excellent, some of it's just okay, but it all hangs together in a way that Make My Music just doesn't. Yeah, this is the part where, for me, my ranking gets a bit trickier. And do you know what? I'm going to change it as we discuss. I'm also going to say Melody Time is next for me. As we get into the upper end of this, there's actually not much between them. But yeah, Melody Time, I thought was great. I loved all the Mary Blair stuff. Once Upon a Winter Time was one of my favourite things that we've done in this era. The Araquan's back, Jose Carioca's back, really fun. Great, I would recommend people watch Melody Time. It like it hangs together a lot better than many of these other package films do. So my one and two were very difficult to decide between. I was left with Ichabod and Mr. Toad and Three Caballeros. I was left with a movie which, for me, Ichabod and Mr. Toad, I do love almost everything in it. I vastly prefer the Sleepy Hollow sequence to the Mr. Toad sequence. Um, Mr. Toad is, is good, it's funny, very accomplished character animation in particular in that. Obviously it's got Cyril the Horse as well. But for me, Sleepy Hollow, at the back half with the Halloween party and then the chase is spot on for me. Like, peak Disney, that holds up against nearly anything that we've seen in, in these features to this point, I think, you know? like the, the chase at the end of that is way better than the analogous chase at the end of Snow White, for example. That holds up as classic Disney for me. Even I know you didn't like the rom-com stuff leading up to it, but I think that's essential, like, context and it almost lulls you into a false sense of security as well. And I just, I do find it fun. I, I like to watch Ichabod Crane Um, He's an interesting character, even just in the way that he moves. Just creeping around town on all the women. Uh, Yeah, for me, I think it was just that it was completely not what I expected. It's not what I knew Sleepy Hollow to be. And that's my fault rather than the films. I I am going to revisit the Sleepy Hollow segment when it comes around to Halloween. So who knows, maybe that love triangle stuff will grow on me next time I see it, now that I'm ready for it and can appreciate it, knowing that the Headless Horseman stuff is coming, that is that is down the way, maybe I can settle into the, the other stuff more. So it was hard for me to decide between that and Three Caballeros, between this movie that is two very consistent, very high standard shorts, or you know, semi-features really, knocked together, versus a movie where the back half of it is some of the most incredible stuff Disney has produced, 
while the first half is two very saccharine, like, aimed at kiddies shorts, which say nothing to me, which I can really just take or leave. I don't care about those first two shorts at all. But if you chopped those off, that back half of Caballeros would easily be number one and would probably even potentially challenge my top five Disney films to this point overall. So it was hard to decide between the one that's really consistent, Ichabon and Mr. Toad, and the one that gets really good, but you've got to sit through some anodyne crap to get there. So I went with Mr. Toad number two, Caballero's number one. Okay. Well, that's interesting because I basically broke the rules and have now a joint number one. I put three Caballeros and Saludos Amigos on the same level. Initially, I had that below Melody Time and had Melody Time as my number one. But the thing that I'm going to remember when I look back on this era and the podcast that we've done and what it was like watching these films, the stuff that I'm going to remember the most is Saludos Amigos and the Three Caballeros. And Three Caballeros, like you said, the second half of it is kind of crazy and amazing. And it's just that first couple of shorts that really let it down. But Saludos Amigos, as much as it doesn't hit the heights of Three Caballeros, I loved all of the sort of framing and the packaging of it and the documentary style stuff and the live action. And just, yeah, the way it self-contextualizes of like Disney is going to South America and Latin American countries and like is taking inspiration and then presenting it in the Disney style, which I just thought was a really lovely idea and they did a great job of it. And I don't think I could quite separate the two. If I was going to say to somebody, oh, you should check out some stuff from this era, I would say watch Saludos Amigos and then watch Three Caballeros from about 20 minutes in. And I don't think people would regret taking the time to do that. I think the fact that these two movies are about something really gives them an advantage over these other package films as well. Like, as much as Make My Music, Melody Time, Fun and Fancy Free, and to an extent Mr. Toad as well, try to give themselves a unifying principle. None of them really quite hit that mark. All of them, like, fall short of achieving the kind of cohesion that Caballeros and Amigos do just by virtue of having a set goal in mind. So you alluded to this before, but do any of these crack the top five? Do any of these in your overall ranking so far challenge the first five features? So my lowest ranked movie from the first five, from the first batch of five... I think, because I haven't listened back to that episode to check and I didn't write it down, but I am pretty sure that my lowest ranked was Snow White. So the question is, basically, for me, is Three Caballeros a better movie than Snow White? And again, we're running into that problem. Snow White has its issues in terms of Pearson, as we've discussed, but like it's still a lot more consistent from beginning to end than The Three Caballeros is. And again, it's just the question of, is the stuff that I find to be really groundbreaking and interesting in the like Donald's Reverie sequence, does that put it above Snow White? And if, if we're talking about whether something's groundbreaking and innovative, then obviously you've got to give that to Snow White too, because it was the first full-length cell animated feature. It brought together so many different technologies that Disney and other studios had been developing up to that point. So on most levels, Snow White quite easily kicks the arse of the three caballeros, But, like, I don't know, I just love it so much. I just love the back end of that so much. It's sending me into a Donald (laughs) Duck-style breakdown. (laughs) It's hard, isn't it? I don't 
think any of these break into the top five for me i think my lowest ranked was pinocchio mainly because it just really disturbed me but i don't think as much as i really enjoyed some of these features it's really hard to try and compare them they're such different styles of films they have very different experiences sitting and watching them but i don't think even as much as i wasn't a massive fan of pinocchio i don't think i could necessarily say any of these are better films than that you know for me these don't crack that top five but they, they still have their own value you know I think I'm going to have to say that as well. I think I'm going to have to keep that top five as is, but compel everybody listening to, if you haven't yet, just check out the last, like, 45 minutes of The Three Caballeros. I mean, I think we've sort of covered this a bit, but, um, yeah, why do you think these films haven't really lasted in pop culture at large? I mean, I think it's interesting that um, one of the main handovers really is mr toad's wild ride in the parks which i hadn't even thought about while i was watching the film but when you said the phrase mr toad's wild ride i'm like oh yeah that's a disneyland thing and of course as you we discussed on the last episode it's not long after adventures of ichabod and mr toad comes out that they are building disneyland so he's just drawing from the most recent stuff but i think it's interesting that yeah none of this stuff has really stuck around and i just think it's i think it's the patchiness and the fact that you wouldn't necessarily to sit down and watch these films in the way that you would the main features especially in the light of the sort of bangers era that we're about to get into yeah i think an important part of it as well is the way that disney have treated their animated classics in the years since so I think we already mentioned it when we were talking about the um, money that films like Pinocchio and Bambi and Fantasia were able to make at the box office. These movies did not make back their budget initially, but they were consistently re-released roughly every 10 years into cinemas for a new generation to enjoy, for parents to take their kids to. So they, obviously you've got things like Disneyland as well, you've got the... um, Disneyland anthology TV show that is going to start airing in the 1950s where segments from these classic films were shown as well. So Disney has always been all about reissuing and trying to make as much profit as they can off the back of their existing catalogue. These movies don't really fit into that strategy very well. These movies didn't make that much money on first release, so I guess there was a question of will people pay to go and see Melody Time again? Does does Melody Time have as much cachet with this new generation of parents as something like Pinocchio does? And the answer is obviously no. They brought out another anthology in 1953 called Music Land, which is like, it incorporates segments from Melody Time and Make My Music. I think that was the attempt to bring together what really worked from these movies and make it into something that we can re-release. But... Yeah, with the exception of Mr. Toad's Wild Ride and a couple of these shorts airing on TV, Disney have never seemed interested in trying to exploit these movies for profit and therefore they have not persisted in pop culture either. One exception to this that I find really intriguing is there is a map of Disneyland which was initially released in 1958, like the official Disneyland map that you get when you go through the park doors to show you where everything is. And this design remained the same well into the 60s, possibly even longer than that. And it has a big border around the outside which features the faces of loads of classic Disney characters. It's got like Dopey, Pinocchio, Snow White, Mickey Mouse, all of these guys. And it's also got Peter from Peter and the Wolf, Picos Bill, and Mr. Toad. Mr. Toad and Picos Bill did have somewhat of a presence in Disneyland at this point, which we've discussed in those episodes. Peter and the Wolf, as far as I know, did not, which is for the best, because it was crap. Yep, and he was a little creep. 
But that does show that up to a point, as recently as 1958, Disney was trying to push these figures into the pantheon of great Disney characters alongside even more recent characters as well, like Peter Pan, Cinderella, Alice were all on there. It didn't quite stick, and this was obviously something that was just abandoned over time as the public continued to show no interest in them. I think some of these films are maybe even more interesting now for being kind of curios, for being these sort of little lost Disney features. It gives them a a bit of their own cachet in a way, or their own identity, that they're not part of that main canon. Um, Which I think, I wonder if people who have been following along these films along with us feel the same. Yeah, I think especially with Disney+, Plus, these films are always going to exist as something for people to show to their friends and say, man, look at this shit, check this out, like, you didn't know this existed. And every single one of these movies has something in it that is noteworthy on that level. Speaking of stuff then, that you can show to your friends on Disney+, Plus, or you can sit and watch on Disney+, Plus right now, Let's have a little chat about Raya and the Last Dragon. Um, This is the brand new Disney animated film that just came out last week, two weeks ago as we're recording this. Um, And as we said in the last episode, we're not going to fully cover it until we get to it down the line. But we have now both seen it. I've seen it twice. Sam, you've seen it once so far, have you? Yep. What were your overall thoughts on Raya and the Last Dragon? What did you make of it? Yeah, I thought it was all right. (laughs) (laughs) Relatively unenthused. I think so. I think compared to you, I'm a bit unenthused. I mean, it was good. And maybe this came from watching it on TV as opposed to watching it in a cinema, which is something that us in the UK, at least, are just going to have to contend with. Yeah, I I mean, I would have loved to have seen this on the big screen because it looks incredible. It's, like, beautiful visually. Yeah, I mean, it is a blockbuster action movie, which is something of a rarity for Disney. And it is a movie with, you know, beautiful, sweeping panoramic visuals which is definitely not a rarity for disney it's something we expect from the company at this point but it is something that comes across most clearly on the big screen you want to sit there and be wowed by these stunning southeast asian inspired fantasy landscapes so in that way maybe watching it at home on a tv was part of i don't want to say even disappointment but part of the non-plusedness that I came away from this movie with. Yeah, I think I did like this more than you. I have to say, I the first time I watched it, it didn't capture me as much, but I watched it again and it really worked for me the second time. I think that's partly because there is a lot to unpack kind of plot-wise. I find like Disney does this quite a lot with some of its recent films. It works out quite dense mythologies that it then unfolds in about three to five minutes at the start of the film in one big splurge and you're like wait what there's there's this kingdom and then there's this magic thing and then and then this thing happened and all the dragons are gone and and with my reviewer head on because i was reviewing this for empire there's a part of you you're watching everything like extra critically and it does give you quite a lot of full-on exposition at the start but i think the benefit of that is that it genuinely does feel like quite an epic world like I really believed in that place and in that kingdom and every part of that kingdom of Commandra has a very distinct visual identity, a very distinct style that makes every set piece feel really individual and exciting. So then when I watched it a second time, knowing where it was going, knowing what that mythology was and without trying to kind of keep up with it and make notes of where this could all be going and kind of, yeah, physically making notes, which is what I do when I watch these films to review, just watching it again with my notepad away and just being in it, 
I had a great time with it. And I loved the fact that it was a Disney action movie. That feels pretty rare. And I think it did the action sequences really well. Like the fight scenes are great. There's really fun chase sequences in it. I thought it had a nice mix of different types of action, which for me made up for the lack of songs. I I like Disney movies with songs in them. And I don't know if it necessarily would have worked in Raya, but I think that's an extra level that always hooks me into like the extra affection that I have for things like Moana comes from the fact that I also, on top of just really enjoying that film, those songs really hooked me in. Yeah, I agree that I felt the absence of the songs and I don't think it would have been that hard to reconcile them with the tone that this movie was going for because this is an action movie, but it's not like dead serious all the way through. The Aquafina character, the titular dragon, is a, at least in terms of the energy that she brings to that performance, is a comedy sidekick that fits really neatly alongside the likes of Genie from Aladdin or Mushu from Mulan. With the possible caveat that I didn't find anything in this movie that funny, there's a lot of jokes in it. None of them I laughed at. They're all, I felt the humour a little bit lame. Like, it wasn't lack of jokes. It wasn't the fact this was trying to be a serious movie. It was the fact that the jokes didn't come off, weren't particularly ambitious in terms of, like, the sense of humour they were going for. They were maybe aimed at kids or something. I don't really know. I thought Aquafina gave a really, really great vocal performance in this. She's, like, an amazing vocal performer. She has such a unique, distinct voice. But I agree with you a bit that I think that character could have been funnier. I think knowing how funny she is and how funny she can be, it made me think, well, as much as this is a warmly funny character, they're not trying to make her like a genie-level gag machine because Aquafina can easily do that. But I have seen some reactions saying, oh, do you know what, Aquafina's Sisu, she's the new genie. And I'm like, I love her and I really like the film. But I didn't get that. It didn't feel like, for me, they were trying to reach that level because you feel that with the Robin Williams' performance in Aladdin. Like, that is knockout joke after knockout joke between his vocal performance and then the way the animation complements that. And knowing how funny Aquafina can be, like, she just steals every scene she's in in, in Crazy Rich Asians. She's so funny. If you've not seen Jumanji, The Next Level, like, she turns up about two-thirds of the way through that film and just steals the, the whole thing. She's super funny in that as well. So I think she gave a great performance, as did Kelly Marie Tran. In fact, the whole cast did. I thought they all embodied those characters really well. I could feel like there was a little bit of wasted potential of giving Aquafina a character who's, like, funny-ish, but not an all-out madcap comedy character because she could completely nail that. Yeah, and like I say, it wasn't because they were trying to make this a dead serious movie. If they wanted to do that, I would let them. But uh, it was that there were jokes there that just weren't landing. It just wasn't a great script. In terms of the jokes, it just wasn't Mm -hmm. a great script. I just don't think there was much you could do with that. Obviously, when you've got someone like Robin Williams or Eddie Murphy in there, you let them off the hook and let them improvise. I've got no idea how good Aquafina is with improv comedy. Maybe she's excellent. You know, she's very talented in a lot of areas, so I assume she would be, but... This just wasn't something... They didn't let her off the leash in that way. So one other thing that you mentioned was the fact that this is part of a string of recent Disney films that takes place in, like, very complex fantasy worlds with complicated mythologies behind them. I guess Moana and Frozen 2 were the main entries in this, like, new cycle. Frozen 2, I have watched that three times and I still have 
there are things in that movie that I just don't understand. There are questions I have <laughs> about the mythology of that. And I'm someone who I follow the MCU and the Marvel comics avidly. I know everything about Star Wars. I know a lot about Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings, despite not really caring about those franchises. I am used to wrapping my head around fantasy world building. Mm. And Frozen 2 defeated me. I could not figure it out. It makes emotional sense more than it makes logical sense, I will say. I think that's true. I mean, I thought that was a perfectly enjoyable movie, and I like that Disney are trying to be a bit more ambitious in terms of their fictional worlds. I think we've had conversations in the past where we've compared the world building in something like Moana or Frozen 2 to Hayao Miyazaki's films, for example, the way that they create these vast mythologies that feel very lived in, based around like ancient elemental spirits, which in Frozen 2 in particular are beautifully realised, and in, in Moana and Ryan and the Last Dragon as well. But at the same time, I feel like they need to remember that this is a relatively short movie aimed at kids. It's not like a high fantasy novel series it's not a hbo tv show like they need to work within the limits of what they can and can't do you watch all of those disney renaissance movies and okay a lot of them are based on pre-existing source material like we already get the gist of a story like aladdin or beauty and the beast but the prologues in these movies are so dense and then i feel like in raya and the last dragon in particular it didn't explore that as well as it could have. I really liked the different settings. I like you had like a snow area, you had like a market, like a night market area, you had a desert area. I think that's cool, but the idea of let's just go from one to the other, picking up MacGuffins, it was like, is this a Legend of Zelda movie? <laughs> you know, I love Legend of Zelda, but that's the plot of every Legend of Zelda game. It's like, is this a, is this a movie or a video game? I like that sense that in some ways the adventure plotting is quite traditional within this fantasy world that feels really new and inviting. So it is this quest through different areas that have very distinct geographies and along the way it's collecting MacGuffins and they are also sort of collecting characters from each place as well that dovetails really neatly into the film's overall message around the need for unity, which, I mean, they've been making this film for a long time, but that hits pretty hard right now. And yeah, I, I kind of like things where, on the one hand, it's pushing outwards of what Disney does, the sort of kingdoms that Disney creates, and the sort of level of fantasy lore that Disney operates within, while also delivering quite a traditional adventure plot that that I found quite satisfying. I'd be really intrigued if you get the chance to watch this again at some point to see how it settles for you on a second viewing because it definitely worked for me quite a bit better second time around. I really enjoyed it first time around but second time it started to really sing for me. I will watch it again when it becomes part of the Disney Plus package in June I think that is. Yeah, it's not too long. It's a, it's only a couple of months that it's down as a premier access so then it becomes part of the main Disney Plus offering. But, I mean, if anyone is listening to this podcast who hasn't watched it yet and is wondering whether or not they should drop 20 quid on it, if the question is like, would I have regret paying money for this if I didn't want to keep up with Disney for my job and for this podcast, I think the answer would be no. To watch it on a TV at home, like, three months before it becomes free, I would just wait till it comes out. Yeah, I'd say if you're struggling in lockdown at the moment and feeling like everything's a bit grey and the same, it is a very vibrant film. And if you like the kind of recent Disney films like Moana, I think there's a lot of Moana's DNA in this, um, songs aside. If you like Moana, if you like Mulan, if you like that slightly 
more action adventure style of Disney movie and you need something to literally brighten up your day, you can do that with, with £20 of your money, which is a not insignificant amount. If you will happily wait, I think you'll still enjoy it when it comes out. But yeah, let us know if you see it at us on Twitter. Let us know what you think and we'll get to it, what, two years or something down the line, Sam? Yeah, probably even a bit longer. I will say as well, if you are someone who liked the movie The Boss Baby and you are <laughs> disappointed that The Boss Baby 2 is being pushed back and you really want to watch another movie with a boss baby in it, this has that. It has a boss-style baby. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A baby with an identity and ideas above its baby station. I don't think it's technically part of the BBCU, the Boss Baby Cinematic Universe. <laughs> I haven't like really tried to match it up with the lore of the world of Boss Baby, although I will definitely set aside some time to that task. But it, I feel like she's of a piece. I feel like this character is would get along very well with Alec Baldwin's classic portrayal of the Boss Baby in the movie The Boss Baby. And remember, when you do that, you also need to see how the legacy of Mr. Stork lines up with the law established in the movie Storks. That's true. I have a lot of work on my hands. So before we wrap up this bonus mini episode, let's tee up what comes next. Because after a run of lesser known films, we're heading into a period of back-to-back bangers. So our next episode is going to be Cinderella, we've got Alice in Wonderland coming up, we've got Peter Pan, we've got Sleeping Beauty, we've got all of these huge, real classic Disney movies. Sam, do you think Disney was aware that it was entering into another kind of imperial phase after the end of this package era? Was that the plan? to now just crank out some belters now that it had a bit more money under its belt? Well, as I've said before, a lot of these movies, Peter Pan and Alice in Wonderland in particular, had been gestating for a long, long, long time and were meant to be going into production around the time that Bambi came out. So it is like they've had some of these ideas stored up for possibly over a decade and they're finally getting to realise them and put them on the screen. And we'll talk about this more next episode, but... There are facets to the marketing campaign around Cinderella, for example, that try to position it as the true continuation of the Disney legacy, the true heir to Snow White's crown, perhaps. And so we've been in the package era. What do is there a name for for what comes next? Like we've had the first five features, we've had the package era. What what should we be calling this next sort of phase of the Disney catalogue? Yeah, it doesn't really have an official name in the way that like the classic era or the Disney Renaissance does. Some people call it the Silver Age, you could call it like the post-war era, the second golden age maybe. I'm quite enjoying the sound of the Bangers era. Do you know what? Yeah, those other titles are a bit boring. I think we should just call it the Bangers era because I feel like there's also a definitive-ish point where the Bangers era sort of stops and you get this into like true. the weird era. <laughs> so come on then, the next run of episodes is going to be the Bangers era. Next up, we have Cinderella. So if you're watching along with us, that is the next film you should be checking out. And we should hopefully be joined in the next few weeks by some pretty exciting guest contributors too. So that should be very exciting. Join us next time then for one of the most beloved Disney princess movies ever made. And in the meantime, it's goodbye from Sam. Goodbye. And it's goodbye from me. Sam, cue up the bangers. Disneyversity is brought to you by Ben Travis and Sam Summers. Our artwork is by Ollie Gibbs and our music is by Nefetz. 
follow us at Disneyversity on Twitter and Instagram and catch you for next week's class. Thank you.